Good evening. There are five of us teachers, but we want to try to keep the, the teachings seamless. So let me begin by saying that tonight we will take off the biospace suit. <laughs> And we will embrace our identity, our other identity, as earthlings. Are we not earthlings? And in particular tonight, I want to investigate what Philip referred to as the software the mind states, this thing we call mind, really the third foundation of mindfulness. Over the years, in my own meditation practice, the most significant shift that has occurred has been in my relationship to my mind. We still live together. We're kind of friends, but we're no longer codependent. <laughs> and it all, it all started when I realized, when I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. It would start thinking first thing in the morning, <laughs> continue thinking through the day. Sometimes just before I'd fall asleep, a couple thoughts, you know. <laughs> it would get mad when it wanted to and sad when it wanted to and horny when it wanted to, and demand that I come along with it. So I finally decided I needed an intervention. <laughs> and eventually, I found meditation. My first retreat, 1970, Bodh Gaya, India. I was 27 years old, had a good degree from a an American college. I had done some therapy, some gestalt, and some Freudian analysis. And, but nobody in my culture had told me about this quality of mind that I possess called mindfulness, and that I could develop this quality and actually step outside of my own drama, my own psyche, and simply observe myself. And it was very exciting to suddenly be, have this faculty of my mind pointed out to me. I thought, this is like having your own uh, personal psychotherapist who travels with you, you know, because this mindfulness just sits there and listens and occasionally says, uh-huh, what else? You know, and, and you don't have to pay $100, $200 an hour. But as the, as the sages say, self-knowledge is often bad news. And uh, as I began to observe myself, 
in meditation practice, it was really very disturbing, especially at the beginning. In that first retreat, I had just come from the United States working as a news comment commentator on a rock and roll radio station. <laughs> and yes, there were some drugs, and the imprinting of the music was very, very deep. So that first retreat, the music would play in my mind over and over and over again. A song would pop into my head with a good hook, and it would just start repeating. I, I thought I was going crazy. I could not stop it. Um, sometimes a song would pop into my mind that was from an album side that I was familiar with, and my mind would track through this side. <laughs> sometimes flip it over and play the other side. All, it was just constantly going on. I, I've talked to other people who have had this experience. Uh, I call it jukebox karma, you know, it's sort of like... <laughs> what you have to live through. The songs died out a bit, and then uh, the talk radio shows started. You know, the <laughs> your finances, your love life, your occupation, your future, playing out over and over again. And then experiencing these difficult feelings in my mind, these difficult um, mind states, always full of desire, sadness, fear, just coming up all the time, you know? I mean, sometimes joy, but... And they seem to have no... Uh, uh, they seem to be completely out of my control. And what I was beginning to look at and examine with mindfulness was not my mind, but our mind, really beginning to examine the human condition. And our mind states are really rather common and similar. If you could exchange minds with the person sitting next to you, you know, and you would watch their mind for a while. The stories would be somewhat similar. You know, we share a culture, we share a moment in biological evolution. You might not be so involved or concerned about what happens, but, you know, <laughs> the stories would be somewhat similar. The states of mind that we all have are so common, they've made it into a Buddhist list the five hindrances, they're known as. Uh, I, I don't particularly like that, that uh, term. I, I like the idea of maybe um, ordinary mind states uh, because they are so ordinary and we all have them. Those five are desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness, and sloth and torpor. Now, has anybody here not experienced one or all of these states in the last few days? Of course not. If you had avoided all of those mind states, you would be an alien or, or totally enlightened. These are common parts of what it means to be human. 
And uh, I'd like to examine them a little bit uh, as, uh, as we try to understand what we encounter when we sit down and meditate. We take it so personally, you know? But it really, I think one of my favorite teachings is, you are not your fault. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to, you know, a planet without desire, aversion, you know, doubt, restlessness, you know, this is the wrong one. And this incarnation is the wrong one. Desire and aversion, let's look at them together because they really are the movement of the mind, a, uh, indicating a dissatisfaction in the mind, moving towards something that's pleasant, moving away from something that's unpleasant. The first thing to acknowledge is these movements are perfectly natural. It's one of my mantras perfectly natural. Every living being has a form of desire and aversion. A single-celled being has a little membrane around it. And when there's something pleasant in the vicinity, the membrane gets extended, and there's some threat, the membrane is retracted. You can think of the tree reaching for the sunlight as being a form of desire, or the animal running away from a sound. Every living being has a form of desire or aversion. It's what we call instinct. And long before Freud or Darwin, the Buddha understood these instinctual reactions to things. He called them underlying tendencies. And when there was pleasant sensations, you would want more of them. When there were unpleasant sensations, you would want them to go away. Built in, to the mammalian condition. This is uh, neurologist uh, Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments on the lateral hypothalamus suggest that the organism's chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. Best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. <laughs> That's kind of like the set point of the mind. Constantly looking out for threats, opportunities, vague mixture of anxiety and desire. One of the great discoveries of uh, the 20th century uh, Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health discovered, he was studying the evolution of the brain and discovered we don't have a brain. We have three brains. And they develop in us in the, in the embryonic stages uh, in the same way they developed in evolutionary history. First grows the brain stem, the reptilian brain. Then grows uh, over that uh, a mammalian brain, the limbic system. And then over that the new human brain, the neo-mammalian brain. And McLean also discovered that one brain doesn't sort of cancel out the other brains as it grows in, but in fact, they're very intricately interconnected. And in fact, the 
what we call the lower two brains seem to be functioning pretty much at 100% all the time, and we only use about 30% of the new human brain, and there's speculation we use that 30% just to make excuses for the behavior <laughs> generated by the other two brains. But this is, this is the condition we're given. This is the condition we're given. On some level, we have to bow to those instinctual, uh, built-in reactions to things. That's what keeps us uh, involved in the four Fs. Fleeing, or fighting, and feeding, and sexual reproduction. <laughs> That's... That's what keeps those things happening. But the Buddha, the Buddha realized something that then he handed to all of us. He realized that as human beings, we have the ability to see the stimulus response mechanism. And in the seeing of it, begin to realize that it is not I, me, mine, that it is uh, inherited, and that it is, in fact, the source of much of our suffering, and that we could intervene and actually learn to calm that mechanism, to gain some control, some freedom from it. It's an evolutionary leap, truly. It's really the second and third noble truth, you know, that, the, that our suffering comes from an uncontrolled mind and that we, the third noble truth, we can work with it. It's workable. We can find more freedom and more satisfaction. So when you see in your meditation practice, when you see the dissatisfaction, the, the continual movement of the mind, it's a gift. It's not a failure. You're getting a look, and you're seeing that it's not self-generated. I mean, you know, you're just out there trying to be present with your breath and your body, and, the, you know, your mind's just going all wild. You're not your fault. <laughs> and when you begin to see the knots and how they're tied, then, you, then they begin to loosen, and you can begin to, to find some freedom. It's still, I know, a shock, you know. Sometimes sit in meditation and just see the movements of mind. Uh, you'll be sitting there and you'll, your knee will hurt and you will have aversion to that. So then you will have desire for the bell. And then the bell will ring and there will be a moment of satisfaction. And then even as you're getting up, you think, I don't really want to go walk. So, that aversion, and then I think I'll go to my room and look at my stuff for a while. And it's like, you know, and it's just like, boom, 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 boom. You, and as the more you settle the mind, the more you see this condition. And, and it's, it can be pretty shocking. I find, uh, I find it can be embarrassing. I, I have often caught myself desiring to be where I already am. You know, that's... <laughs> You been there, done that? The great haiku by Basho. I am in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. 
So it's a great revelation. And, and what's even a, a, perhaps an equally great revelation is that the, our suffering comes not because our latest desire goes unfulfilled, but because the wheel of desire continues to go around. And as, as the Buddha said, the first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created. And, and as we meditate, and I know that you've all perhaps had a moment or two, and if not yet, you probably will have a moment of, or two, where the mind is relatively calm and silent and that's a whole different kind of happiness, what the Buddha called the highest happiness. And if we don't get to experience it, we have nothing to compare our ordinary uh, desires and, uh, and uh, wants. We have nothing to compare it with. Sometimes I, I wonder, well, am I going to ever be able to get rid of all my desires and aversions, you know, and be completely free of any kind of past conditioning at all? Um, the Dalai Lama isn't. So, you know, I figure I'm, I, I don't have a chance. <laughs> I had the privilege uh, to fly with the Dalai Lama once. I was in Dharamsala with my wife. We were looking around, kind of visiting, and uh, we had a plane flight back to New Delhi. And uh, we got in the cab, and we were heading for the airport, and the Tibetans were lining the streets with flowers and waving at us, and I waved back. You know. <laughs> I was sad to leave, and they were obviously sad to see me go. But when we got to the airport, we uh, were told that the Dalai Lama and some of his entourage were flying back on this plane, and it was an 18-seater plane. And my wife was reading the Dalai Lama's autobiography that, where he writes that he's afraid of horses and he's afraid of flying. And he was sitting a couple rows behind me, and I, I kept looking back, and he was pale, and he had cotton in his ears, and he had his head pressed against the window, and he was doing his mala o mani padme I mean, he was, he was really visibly, visibly frightened. I felt a lot safer actually having him on the plane with me, but, you know, he... But, you know, I think maybe we carry some of that through our lives, that it's not a matter of getting rid of some of those instinctual reactions and, and mind states that arise. But it's becoming familiar with them and learning to allow them and becoming uh, more accepting of them, depersonalizing them, demystifying them. Another common state, mind state, that we encounter in meditation we encounter in our lives is doubt. Now, I think a better word is uh, uncertainty, but I'm not sure. <laughs> the, the mind, 
Okay, you know, sometimes I stoop a little low for the jokes. All right. The mind does not like uncertainty. It's a form of fear. We want to know what's happening and what's going to happen. And the problem is, we can't. We can't know what's going to happen. And some part of us knows that we can't know what's going to happen. So this doubt appears as constant planning and rehearsing and trying to figure it out so that we will be, it's really a survival issue, so that we will be safe when, when whatever it is gets here. <laughs> uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, uh, he used to have a mantra, anything can happen at any time. And it was just that, that kind of statement of we, we are always living with insecurity. Alan Watts called Zen uh, the wisdom of insecurity, the wisdom of being able to live with that understanding and accept what happens in the mind when we feel that kind of uncertainty about the future, that fear. Perfectly natural. In my life and also in my teaching, I see that most doubt is about ourselves. We want to feel secure. We want to feel loved and valued. And it comes out as a continual sort of investigation. How am I doing? What's going on? Where do I fit in? It's... Finding our place in the pecking order is a very powerful uh, instinct that we, are, we uh, are born with. In Danny Goldman's latest book, Social Intelligence, he says uh, research shows that when the mind is kind of uh, not facing a life and death situation, when it's kind of idling, the default mode is the comparison mode, where it starts to judge you and yourself and how you're doing in comparison to your peers and the people around you. Alfred Adler, the great psychologist of the 20th century, one of them said, to be human is to feel inferior. And in our culture, we're especially ridden, I think, with self-doubt because we're bombarded with these messages and these images of people who are perfect or have it all together. And uh, we can never live up to or match the kind of perfection we see in, in the advertising images. It becomes a, 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 a burden to carry that we are never enough. You know, you're not going to be, uh, well, maybe, but Julia Roberts, George Clooney, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of high-class status envy, you know. I figure if you're going to compare yourself why not compare yourself to all the people who lived before 1900, say? <laughs> You've got it really good. <laughs> and if you don't understand your mind, you know, and that, and that drive to, to kind of meet, uh, keep up with the Joneses, and uh, the advertisers understand and uh, will keep you going. And I think that a lot of the self-doubt grows out of this culture of extreme individualism. No sense of, 
a participation mystique, as, as Philip mentioned last night, of belonging to a, a community or nature or uh, something bigger than ourselves. We, we think of uh, our life's uh, journey as singular and we're individual and we got to do it on our own and that we create our own destiny that it has nothing to do with outside circumstances. You know, nobody says God willing anymore. It's sort of like it's all on you and it's a, that's a heavy burden. A heavy burden because it, you can never be enough. There was a line in the 60s, you can be anyone you want to be. I think it was a big lie, to tell you the truth. I don't think you can, I don't think you're free to be anyone you want to be. I think you're pretty much forced to be yourself. Maybe you're free to be yourself. So doubt. Sometimes when you're sitting there, do you think, you know, everybody's, everybody's doing pretty good except for me. And you just sense that around you, you know, everybody's quiet and you can't go check and say, you know, are you, are you really, are you ahead of me? You know? And of course, if you really, you know, get in turmoil of the mind and you, you can start to doubt the practice, you know, it's so boring. And you can doubt the teachers. They don't have robes. They look like me. You know, they're just <laughs> ordinary people up there. And uh, as a good cult leader, I would say, ignore those doubts. <laughs> they, they come up. But again, with doubting mind, again, with doubting mind, bow to it. It's really trying to take care of you, you know. Your mind's really trying to take care of you. And as you bow, you suddenly are no longer drowning in whatever the mind state is, but you have seen it and you have named it and you have honored it and uh, you've gained some freedom. From its, from its uh, effects. The final two hindrances, restlessness, sloth, and torpor. Kind of energetic states, uh, ordinary states of mind. Sloth and torpor. The public interest law firm. <laughs> a kind of listlessness, a low energy. We're tired. That's the reason we feel sloth and torpor. We're tired. And at retreat, we really feel it. I think that's one of the main reasons for it. It's not easy being a human, uh, let alone being a human in this particular civilization. But just being a human, having to feed this body a few times a day, having to fight gravity every time you get out of bed in the morning, having to fight gravity with every step you take, actually. Never being told why you're here exactly, <laughs> what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. It's a, it's a confusing, tiring existence. We come to retreat and, and we feel it. 
And, and we feel this, this mind that has been revved up and amped up for multitasking, you know, driving and talking on our cell phone and chewing gum all at the same time, things, you know, we really uh, may be overtaxing this brain. The evolutionary psychologists say we're, we're using brains that were designed primarily for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. Which explains our addiction to shopping. You know, if it's out there, you go get it. But, but it also, it also explains our our restlessness. You know, uh, we're not we're he, when we're here. We're not hunting and gathering, and we're not getting anything done. And I think that what, you know, I think that all of us kind of feel that, uh, that lack of doing, you know, it's, it's, we're, do, we're doers. And when we come here and are visibly not getting anything done, or at least in our careers and our goals, and it, it makes us nervous, it makes us um, a little uncomfortable. We're trying to learn how to just be. And that's a whole, it's a whole other mode of a life. And you know, we, you have very few distractions and, and ones that you do think up for yourself, we tell you to kind of uh, not go for them. So it's sort of like the mind has nothing to chew on. Uh, it's like taking the binky away, you know, it's like the, the, there's, it's just space in there. And it, it can create a lot of restlessness. Uh, I, it's been my main uh, plague, is restlessness. Jack says you can't die from restlessness, but I don't know. I'd be, I, I'd, I'd be careful. I'd be careful. Say, people who really suffer from it, I say, you know, if it really gets bad, uh, go into the restroom and memorize the hand-washing instructions. You know, just, just something to, you know. I think that on, on some physiological level, and this is, you know, some kind of conjecture, but I do think that there, there might be some, something to it, that we really are turning down the left hemisphere of the brain, the rational, analytic, verbal part of the brain, and we're exercising and awakening a more intuitive, receptive, uh, holistic uh, view, um, experiential kind of knowing that, that happens in the right hemisphere. We're learning a, really a different kind of knowing, a different kind of understanding. Okay, it's safe to say we all have these difficult mind states. We're all perfectly human. Another one of my, my mantras, Perfectly human. Perfectly human. However, we all get different mixtures of these difficult mind states or different um, packages that we have to live with. Different temperaments. All cultures knew that we are born with a particular temper, a particular feel to us. 
the Greeks thought it depended upon the mixture of, uh, of uh, the humors, four different kinds of uh, humors, uh, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And they had a particular mixture when you were born, and if you had a lot of phlegm, you were phlegmatic. If you had a lot of blood, you were sanguine, warm. Um, the Greeks also believed that people uh, were associated with different elements. You know, you were stiff, like wood, soft, like water. The Chinese as well, had a, a, you were born with a mixture of yin and yang. You could work with it, but the, there was a, a, a predominance of one or the other. The Chinese also had, uh, people were associated with different elements, different seasons. Everybody has a feel to them, you know, a temperature, a temper. And over centuries, different cultures have developed typologies, you know, to, to kind of classify you, place you in a, in a particular type. Uh, we had astrology, an Enneagram, uh, the Disney typology, dopey, sleepy, or grumpy. <laughs> Every culture has had their own way of understanding this phenomena. Now the scientists are poo-pooing those old systems, but they are developing their own typology. Uh, I recently read a report saying that they found a gene that selects for novelty-seeking behavior. This gene has an extra-long dopamine receptor, which sounds kind of Freudian. <laughs> but it is that extra-long dopamine receptor that makes the person perhaps a little more prone to novelty-seeking. And they're, they're expecting to find four different genes that select for four uh, for, for four different types of personality, uh, novelty-seeking, reward-dependent, pain-avoidance, and persistence. Jerome Kagan, the Harvard psychologist, uh, did a, a generational study, and he wrote, um, he, he found evidence that children inherit certain neurochemistries that affect how they react to novelty, causing them to be relatively inhibited or uninhibited, traits that tend to last a lifetime. After many years of studying the origin and nature of temperament, Kagan wrote in his book Galen's Prophecy, quote, I have become more forgiving of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily, rise to anger too quickly, or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. We all have a particular temperament that we carry with us. And to become familiar with it, to become more comfortable with it, rather than trying to fix ourselves or become somebody else. That doesn't mean that we cannot temper our temperament or learn how to work with the energies. And in fact, that is very much what we find in the different Buddhist typologies. Uh, people have particular temperaments, but they're all workable. 
with, of course, the power of mindfulness and uh, the techniques that have been developed. In the Theravada school, our uh, tradition, you have three particular types, greed, aversion, and delusion types. I'm a greed type, proud of it. <laughs> Not particularly proud of it, but I, you know, I know that's the, that's the way I approach the world. Um, it doesn't mean I'm not sometimes deluded, but uh, that is my dominant uh, type. In the, the Sudhi Maga, they have some interesting descriptions of, uh, of the three types going about d- daily activities, such as walking, talking, getting ready for bed. Kind of interesting. Uh, when they sit or lie down to go to sleep, one of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. And when woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? (laughs) One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, puts their foot down quickly, lifts it up quickly. When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised and they seize on trivial virtues. The Tibetans uh, have five families that you're born into. The Vajra family, the Diamond family, the Buddha family uh, is a a, uh, energy, a space family. And the energy can be used for good and and to to help end suffering, both for yourself and others, or it can be used uh, negatively, depending on how much mindfulness, how much uh, attention you can bring to the flow of, emotions through your life. So for instance, the Vajra family, the diamond family is a, is a sharp, has a sharp energy, you know, and can either use that sharpness to injure, to, to be cutting, or to cut through delusion, to see clearly, to have a, a, a sharp vision. The Buddha family uh, is a family that has to do with space and it can either be spaced out or spacious, depending on how that energy is, is used or worked with. The point is that we each have a temperament, and uh, as the Spanish proverb goes, natures and features survive to the grave. Of course, now we have plastic surgery, so I guess that's a, not necessarily a truism, and uh, there's a lot of people who will tell you you can get a new personality uh, if you come to a particular workshop. Uh, I think a lot of people who I talked to thought that when we started meditating, we were going to get a new personality, that we were going to c- become someone totally different, someone who would be easier to live with. But uh, after 30 years, I'm basically the same person I was when I started. I have the same tendencies, the same kind of temperament. But I really feel like I, I don't take it so personally that I kind of let my personality move through me. Um, uh, as Ramdas said, you know, he, he kind of thinks of his personality as a pet. You know, it's always around and he 
Sometimes he lets it off the leash, but mostly it's just, you know, it's not who he is. And that really uh, begins to reveal itself as we go as we go through this process, as we walk down this path. How do we work with our package of, medita- of, of uh, mind states, you know? The difficulties, all these feelings that are so familiar to us. The Buddha's instructions in the Satipatthana Sutra are very simple when it comes to mind states. He says, when there's lust in the mind, one knows there's lust in the mind. When there is anger in the mind, one knows there is anger in the mind. Very simple. No fix, no moralizing, just knowing. Because in that process of knowing, you will begin to see that these are generic, that these are species-specific uh, emotions, not owned by you. Uh, as the Buddha might say, if you know, I mean, if you really were in control of your emotions, you would be happy all the time, wouldn't you? Would you choose these others? No, of course not. So the way we work with them, we, we let them be. We let them have their life. We bring attention to them and let them have their life. We feel them in, a, in, in the body. We feel restlessness as sensations. We feel doubt as a kind of weakness, an actual physical feeling, desire. Where does desire lie? How do you feel desire? What does it feel like to feel desire? Tibetan teacher Tsultramalioni teaches a practice called Chod, where they turn their negative, difficult emotions into demons. They visualize them as demons, you know, those fierce, Tibetan-looking, those Tibetan uh, uh, demons with flaming hair and fangs and blood dripping. And and then they visualize cutting off the top of their head, making it into a cup, and putting the essence of themselves in it, the essence of who they are, and then inviting the demon to come and eat its fill, to... Bring the demon in to let it be huge and big and, and, and vicious. She says, The meditator is told to visualize his or her fear, anger, sorrow, greed as demon, and then to invite the demon to come and feast. She says, we usually don't feed our demons well enough because we don't like those parts of ourselves. In Chod practice, however, in contrast to killing the dragon, the usual procedure in the hero's journey, we nurture the demon until the dualistic battle between ourselves and the demon disappears. So, in our own practice, we have begun bringing our attention over and over again into our bodies to feel the sensations and to explore them and to 
allow them and to invite them to have their life, to come and visit us. They change. They move through. Just as our personality kind of lives through us, our temperament lives through us. And the more we develop mindfulness, the more we see clearly how these, these processes take place independently of us. And, and we no longer drown in them. We no longer have to be mastered by them. So we invite them. Also, we recognize them as having their place. And, you know, they're, they're partly to protect us, maybe inappropriately. Maybe they are uh, leftover kinds of reactions that we don't, no longer need or no longer useful. But making a little inner bow to them as, you know, having some use for us, I think is very helpful. It reminds us that, that it's not I, me, mine. It is generic. It is being human. And the suffering that we experience really teaches us how to be human. That we're all in this together. I'll close with a roomy poem. A song of being empty. A certain Sufi tore his robe in grief, and the tearing brought such relief, he gave the robe the name Faraji, which means ripped open, or happiness, or one who brings the joy of being opened. His teacher understood the purity of the action while others just saw the ragged appearance. If you want peace and purity, tear away your coverings. This is the purpose of emotion, to let a streaming beauty flow through you. Call it spirit, elixir, or the original agreement between yourself and God. Opening into that brings peace. It leads to a song of being empty, pure silence. Or as a friend Rick Fields once wrote in a perfect little haiku, heartbroken, open, Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. You can put your biospace suits back on. <laughs> we have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.